Tonight's lesson is over the Ark of the Covenant. <sighs> yeah, and I think I think we're gonna have. I think what I'm gonna do is we're gonna split it. We're gonna go cover the Ark tonight and cover the Day of Atonement next week. I don't think we're gonna have enough time to cover all of that tonight. It's gonna be tricky because like. The Ark of the Covenant exists solely for the purpose of what happens on the Day of Atonement. So I'm, I'm going to want to keep talking about it. And uh, I'm going to try to refrain from getting into what we need to get into next week. So, um, and, uh, and anyway, before we jump right into it, though, I want to say uh, the Hebrews 9 passage has come up the last three weeks. I, I say that I bring it up the last three weeks. It's my fault. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I don't have an answer to that, you know, the, where the Hebrews puts the... Uh, the altar of the uh, incense on the other side of the veil, it seems to be putting it in the Holy of Holies. I, I don't have a good answer for that yet. Um, I, I just want you to know I'm not content with that. I'm, I'm, I'm continuing to dig into that a little bit. Um, I, I found more frustration this week. Uh, I went to some of the experts, and uh, they don't answer it either. Uh, they just leave you with more confusion. I will say this. Uh, I don't know how much we know about the Greek text, but there's basically two um, camps of, of Greek text that Bibles are based out of. And so, for example, the King James Version is, is based on, on one group of Greek texts. And let's say like the New American Standard is, is based off of a different group of, of Greek texts. And, uh, and, and so all of the translations fall to one or the other. Now, it doesn't make that big of a difference anymore because most of our modern translations have basically compensated for the the places where one is different from the other like they'll go ahead and throw it in there if something is different uh if anyone is anyone here using niv okay so you'll notice like on the 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 ethiopian eunuch account like there's just a verse that's not there like you know i mean they just skip the number completely okay that's because it's omitted and and the text that 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 the NIV is based on, uh, but but like I said, most modern texts will go ahead and include it anyway. Uh, so anyway, it's not that big of a deal. But I will say this: that Hebrews nine account, there is discrepancies there between those two texts. So some translations render that the altar of incense; others render it uh, just the censers from the incense. And so that may make a difference about whether it's referring to what takes place on the Day of Atonement or or just the altar in general. And then, um, and then there's this word, you know, the New, uh, New American Standard at least translates it that the second veil having an altar. There's, there's, there's something with that word having that I haven't quite figured out. And so um, it, it uh, but anyway, that's where we're at with it. So has anyone else found anything? Well, I got into the censor discussion as well, seeing that, but, but then we have the huge omission of the altar of incense. Right. Yeah. yeah, so like I said, it doesn't really give us much. But there's definitely something with the text that's, that's a little off there. So, um, so anyway, that's, that's where we're at. Not, not much help yet. Did you find anything, Chris, there? No? Okay. Yeah, all right. Well, let's have a word of prayer. We're going to go ahead and jump in the ark. Uh, we're we're going to keep, keep you know, looking into that in the future. And you know, hopefully we'll find something out as we go. But let's, uh, let's bow our heads for prayer. Father God, tonight as we come together, uh, and uh, Father, as we study your word, I, I'm grateful for everyone that's here tonight and grateful for the opportunity to, uh, to, present, uh, to present your message there this evening. Uh, Father, I'm grateful for, uh, you know, just the effort that is going into 
um, rightly dividing your word in our lives here and in, in this congregation and the congregations represented here tonight. Uh, I just pray that, Father, as we uh, all are diligent to be students of your word, that you bless our efforts, um, that, Father, in our pursuit uh, of, uh, of, of truth here, that, uh, that, Father, your word would always be the final authority. Uh, in our lives and our congregations and, and, and what we're doing. Uh, Father, as we go week by week, diving further into uh, the tabernacle pattern, uh, the blueprint that you've given us for Christian living, for the church, for what it means to be in Christ, I pray that, uh, that Father, just more and more things are connected to that each week as we get a deeper uh, understanding of, of our identity in Jesus and, and Father, appreciation for what you've done for us. And, and, uh, and so for that, uh, for that reason, I, I hope that uh, this class is meeting its, its intended purpose. And so, Father, bless our time tonight and, uh, and give us wisdom always, Father, to apply the things we study and read. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> All right, so uh, we're moving on, you know, we've, uh, we've gone through now, uh, obviously, you know, we, we come into the, uh, to the holy place, uh, you know, the, the, the outer courtyard, we meet the, the altar of burnt offerings, we come to the laver, laver, lever, uh, we <laughs> come to the tent of meeting, the holy place, and we've talked about the three articles of furniture in there, uh, and so we've got on the south wall, we've got the lamp stand, uh, we've got on the north wall, the table of showbread, and on the, um, excuse me, west side there, we've got the uh, altar of, uh, of incense, the golden altar. Um, <clears throat> then we approach the veil. Okay, and so um, beyond the veil, we are approaching the Holy of Holies. And there's only one piece of furniture in there. Uh, that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. It's the Ark of the Covenant. Probably out of all of the things associated with the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant is probably the one people are most familiar with as far as it, they at least know it exists. Um, I can tell you that for me, uh, my extent of knowledge about the Ark of the Covenant came from Indiana Jones in the 80s when he recovered it from the Nazis, uh, and uh, that's about all that I ever knew about it. Um, I knew some of the things associated with it also from watching the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, okay? And so we've got the tablets of stone at least represented there. We'll talk about that a little bit more tonight. Uh, and so, you know, this is, this is a, like I said, a very... Uh, you know, mysterious part of the Bible for a lot of people. It, it's, it's something that a lot of people don't dig into, don't read about, don't study about. And, uh, you know, there's, there's so much here. And, you know, when I said, uh, you know, I, I'm hoping that, that our, our understanding each week, is, you know, I don't think there's been any real, oh my goodness, that changes everything for me kind of, uh, kind of ideas through this tabernacle. But I think hopefully what we're seeing is, is just a deeper understanding. And what I mean by deeper is... You know, not, not that it's so profound and, and wise, but, but you know, you all know when you have a deep conversation with somebody versus a shallow conversation with some, you know, so deep as in it's connected to a lot of things, right? And so that's the idea. And so as we go through the tabernacle, what I'm hoping to see is there's so much of the Christian life that's connected here. And so this is a great way to reteach ideas that everybody's heard before in a new light. It's a great way to revisit the truth and, and the pattern for the church and to deal with false doctrine in a way that people maybe haven't heard yet. Uh, it's a great way to reinforce uh, your own faith and the faith of, of those around you. Um, you know, it's, it's just, you know, I'm, I'm hoping those things are coming together here. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I don't have a... a 
Um, within the, the Holy of Holies, okay, we've got um, that Ark of the Covenant. And again, only piece of furniture in here. And the veil is what kept this room off limits. We talked a lot about that last week. Uh, you know, one thing that's really important, what was the purpose of the veil? If we had to just sum it right up. Barrier, that's it. It's a, it is a barrier. It is to keep people out, right? It's, it's, it's not the doorway. It's not the access panel. Uh, it's not for, for decoration. It was to be a barrier between man and God. And so um, everything else with the tabernacle, what we see is the priests are hands-on with. Okay, so that would, that would include us even today, hands-on with, right? Uh, everything uh, inside the holy place is about our relationship with God so that you see personal responsibility as a priest before God with the Word of God, with uh, the Lord's Supper and, the, and proclaiming the death of Christ till He returns, uh, and with, uh, with our prayer lives. These are all things that you are going to be hands-on with in your life as well. But beyond the veil, you've got you to think about what it would have been like for them. Everybody knows what's there, right? But it's still, there's still a lot of mystery to it because who gets to see it? just one guy in one time a year and then even then you know there's not a light in there right i mean it's it's not exactly like he goes in with a lantern or a flashlight uh you know the the incense would be in there that's part of what happens on the day of atonement uh there's just there's a lot of mystery kind of kind of surrounding you know what's inside of that room even though everybody knows it it's it's not something that everybody has first-hand experience with okay and so that's kind of a Something we'll talk about more as we go. Let's turn to Exodus 25. What I'd like to do tonight is we're going to kind of look at the ark itself and examine um, what went in it uh, and, and the purpose of those things. And then I'd like to take us through a little walk um, through the history of the ark uh, and, and, and specifically kind of zero in on on, uh, on one account there that I think is relevant for us. Uh, Exodus chapter 25, 10 through 22. The Bible says this, They shall construct an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, one and a half cubits wide, one and a half cubits high. You shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and out you shall overlay it, you shall make a gold molding around it. You shall cast four gold rings for it and fasten them on its four feet and two rings shall be on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark with them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be removed from it. You shall put into the ark of the testimony, which I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. You shall make two cherubim of gold, make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and one cherub at the other end. And you shall make the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat at its two ends." The cherubim shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings and facing one another. The faces of the cherubim are to be turned toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I will give to you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel." 
All right. Um, so, you know, one thing that's interesting out of, uh, you know, when God set up the tabernacle, you know, and gave the pattern, you know, and again instructed Moses make everything according to the pattern, the Ark of the Covenant was the first thing that was built and constructed for the tabernacle. Okay, and so this, this was the first thing on the, on the list. Uh, again, it's acacia wood overlaid with gold. You know, we, we see that. We've talked about the barriers. We talked about how God is even visually representing the separation between the holy and the profane uh, in the ten of meeting you've got the holy place now we've passed through the second veil we're in the holy of holies we, we don't get holier than that so you know it makes sense that this this ark would be covered in gold uh, it's got two cherubs which is you know just these are angels okay and they're made of one piece one at one end one at the other they're facing each other their wings are covering uh, their face and that sits over top of the mercy seat and so that's that's essentially what we have going on now um, we also see that in this room is going to be the glory of God okay let's let's turn um, into Exodus chapter 40 Now, how big is this room? 15 by 15, okay? It's, again, it's not, it's not a big room at all. It's, it's a very small room, uh, but God is present in this room, okay? In Exodus chapter 40, okay, verses 34 through, um, well, 30, uh, 35 there, it says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, uh, you know, well, we can keep reading there, 36 through 38. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and there was fire by night in the, in the sight of the house of Israel. And so... <clears throat> Once the tabernacle was in place, okay, glory of God descended in the cloud down to the Holy of Holies. Now, you know, as far as Israel is concerned, God lives in that room. God is in that box. God is sitting on His throne on that mercy seat. And God is governing and ruling and, and, and taking care of His people from that place. Now that's, that's really important because, you know, if that's where God is, you know, this is, this is something we've seen throughout some of these other lessons, you know, God's not in more than one place, right? And so, you know, there's one tabernacle. There ends up being one tabernacle at a time, and it's only located in one place. And so to worship God, you have to be where God is. Right, you know, the the whole point of all of this is trying to, uh, you know, trying to deal with your relationship with God and deal with your sin and and work these things out. And you know, you you can't approach God if He's just not there at all, right? And so God, it, you know, is is present in this room, and that's that's so very important. I know, you know, a lot of times we try to, uh, you know, we we try to associate sometimes in our reading you know, we try to associate the temple with the church building, okay? And we cannot do that. God, and I know we've talked about this in the past, but God does not live here, right? This building is not the house of God. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, uh, this building isn't the church. The, the church 
assembles here in this building. Um, but, you know, even in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, you know, even in, in the days of Christ, they're living on earth. You know, there's a, there's a reason every faithful Jew had to travel to Jerusalem, to the temple, you know, at least three times a year. God was, was there, you see. He wasn't in their synagogues. You know, they, they didn't go to church service in the synagogue. Sometimes we kind of hear people making those kind of uh, comparisons. The synagogue was where they went to, to read the Bible, essentially, or have it read to them, because how many of them had a copy at home? Didn't happen. I mean, it, it was a small fortune to own one. And so, so the, the tabernacle, you know, the temple, the holy uh, of holies, God dwells there. His presence is there. Israel saw that. Uh, but that doesn't mean that God is standing behind the curtain in the flesh. Okay? And so, what does John, does anyone, anyone quote John 4.24 for me? Does anyone know it? Very good. So God is, so God is not flesh. Right, God, God has no physical form. We see that, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of scriptures that point to that idea. No one has seen God at any time and lived. Uh, you know, John chapter 1 tells us that no one has seen God at any time, but Christ has came to put Him on display for us. You know, there is no physical appearance of God. And, you know, uh, let, let's, let's look at that Colossians chapter 1 account. Um, Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 says that Christ is the image of the invisible God, okay? And so if God is spirit, if God is invisible, right? God is not standing, uh, you know, behind that veil in the flesh. And th there's a reason I bring that up because if he's not there physically, then how is he there? Spiritually, okay? Now, you know, today, where, you know, where is the temple of God? Where is the holy of holies right now? It's every Christian, right? Is God in there physically or spiritually? Spiritually, okay? Now, you know, I think I've mentioned this before, but, you know, we, you know the church struggles with this idea of spiritual and physical stuff. You know, we, we get real confused, uh, and if we're real honest, you know, I think our, our, you know, what we tend to reduce this to is this idea that the physical ends up, you know, if we had to define the difference between what's physical and spiritual, you know, we at least act as the physical is more real than the spiritual. Now, we never would admit that. We're, we wouldn't be that foolish, right? But that's how we act, is that the spiritual isn't as real as the physical. Why? Well, we can't touch it and I can't smell it or taste it or, you know, those sorts of things. And so, because you can't use your physical senses to observe it, it's not as real as the spiritual now how many times have we heard people today make comments like well you know the reason nobody wants to go to church is because nobody in the church acts like the church right it's all them hypocrites in the church that's why nobody seems to be interested okay you all had your fall festival day you all had some some newcomers stop by okay at least you know i don't know who all got to talk to him i know jake told me he got to talk to several how many of them had a bad experience with the church in the past did you talk to more families than that? Okay, yeah. So just about everybody that I've talked to, like, you know, if they're not currently in a church or, or a part of a church, uh, they're going to tell you, you tell you if you get personal with them, get to talking that they've had a bad experience with, with a bad church or something bad has happened there. People didn't act very Christ-like. And it comes down to the fact that people act in one way when they're in the building and acting a different way when they're elsewhere. You know why that happens? 
because we haven't got it figured out that this building isn't what's special about what happens here. Right, Because we haven't quite figured it out that God lives in the Christian and is still in the Christian when we leave the assembly, when we leave our Bible study. He's still in the Christian when we're driving home in our truck. He's still in the Christian when we're uh, you know, uh, at the polls voting. Still, still in the Christian when we're in the workplace. Still in the Christian when you're at home. Um, you know, and so, if we could get past this physical spiritual barrier and, and start living like we understood that God lives within us, that, that God would reject uh, temples and buildings and even that giant you know, temple of Saul, that He would reject all of those things as His dwelling place and would eventually would choose you as his abode, right? Uh, you know, we talked last week, I go to prepare a place for you, you know, and, and that him and his father was going to come and make his abode with us. You know, we, we talk about these barriers. Everybody's got to think that the next guy in line is in a better place, right? The Gentiles looking at the Jew and thinking, boy, wouldn't that be nice to get that close? And the Jews looking at the priest saying, boy, wouldn't it be nice to be able to go in there and serve? And the priest, even though they could get so close, they're just a, a, a veil away from God, has got to be thinking, Man, you know, I still don't have I still don't have access to God. Wouldn't it be nice if I could go in there and 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 be in the presence of God like like the high priest just one day? And here God is on the other side of that veil saying, if only I could be in them. Right? And that's what he desires. And so until we get that through our, you know, it's not it's not enough to know the facts. We've got to start thinking on these terms. God is in me. I carry God with me everywhere I go. That, that however I act here, I have to act everywhere else. If it's not okay here, it's not okay outside of here. If it, if it is okay here, it should be fine everywhere else too. You know, those, those have to be the, the standards that we uphold. And you know, if, until we do, we're going to be a bunch of hypocrites. That's, that's what's going to happen. Um, I don't know, Jake, you're too close to everyone here to probably admit. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know you all as well, so I can tell stories that I can't tell, so maybe, maybe back home. Um, you know, here's, here's something that's interesting. Uh, you know, everyone has cell phones nowadays, and, uh, you know, everybody's figuring out how to use the cell phones, and that's pretty much, you know, most people don't have a home line anymore, so everyone's just using the cell. One thing that I have, I'm convinced everyone needs a lesson on Everyone knows how to make a call. A lot of people don't know how to hang up the call. Okay? You, you guys know what I'm talking about? There's people out there, you'll talk on the phone, and when, and when the phone's over, if you don't hang up... We're rolling. Yeah, we're rolling live. And so, like, there's been people, Christian people, right, that I've had the phone call with, and like, okay, I'll talk to you later, but they don't hang up. They just set the phone down. And then I'm hearing everything they're saying next... And I'm like, oh, they're not the same person when they don't think they're talking to the preacher. You know, I find that out real quick. You know, I, I've, I've had people uh, where I've been out and about and I hear someone talking and I look over, I'm like, oh, I go to church with them. They don't act the same right now <laughs> as they do when, when they know the preacher's around, you know. And so that stuff happens a lot. And it, again, it comes down to the fact that we don't believe 
that God is in us there like he's in us here, right? You know, and so we've, we've got to come to grips with these terms. God, the presence of God spiritually in your life is a big deal, and we've got to start thinking that way, right? We've got to start uh, living that out in, in all aspects here. And so, so God was not standing in the tabernacle in the flesh. Uh, God doesn't stand anywhere in the flesh until John chapter 1, you know, in the, you know where yeah, the, the word, you know, uh, became flesh. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and so what did show up in that room was the glory of God. His, uh, we'll hear that word. Uh, what do they call it? The glory. They call it. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, uh, it's basically saying glory, glory, right? Cause that word means glory. Uh, but it's, it's this idea of this, this brightness, this light of God, this, this whiteness, this, this bright, um, you know, uh, brilliant, uh, presence of God. And so, just because it's spiritual and not in the flesh, understand that doesn't make it less real, okay? Doesn't make it less real. Um, and so, okay, um, <clears throat> we've talked about the barriers uh, to this. Um, we're going to get into the dimensions here in a second. Uh, again, this 15 by 15 foot room, uh, the Holy of Holies, there's only the one piece of furniture in it. It's just the Ark of the Covenant. Nothing else is, is going on in there. And, you know, the veil is that barrier between it and man uh, with no opening, no access point. We do have one day of year where one man gets to go in there. History tells us they would put bells on him and a rope on him in case God would struck him down. They could pull him out of there. And all that, like I said, is a pretty big indicator that says we probably have no business being in there. You know, that, that, that uh, this isn't, we're not really welcomed there, okay? And so that's something to consider as well. Uh, the dimensions of the ark, we kind of we went through those in cubits. Um, I wanted, I, I tasked Jake with finding me the most manly uh, tape measure he could find. And so this is what we got. <laughs> the backup. All right, we've got um, 45 inches long, okay? Just curious here. Oh, you didn't build your communion table to the right specs. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so 45 inches long. That's, that's, this is it, okay? Um, and it's, it's 20, was it 27? So 27 inches uh, wide, 27 inches tall. I, I, I bring that up because this, this table's quite a bit bigger. If you start looking around and uh, dig up on the internet about pictures of what the ark would have looked like, I mean... This might be something you would see. Uh, usually they get even bigger than that. A lot of times they're like the size of a coffin. Uh, you know, they've got the big poles. It's taken eight guys to carry it around, that kind of a thing. And they, they get rather, rather large. Um, the only piece of furniture in there, 45 inches, I mean, that's, it's not a very big box, guys. It's not a very big box, okay? And so I want you guys to visualize that. And then 27 so that's how tall, that's how wide she is, okay? Not a very big box, okay? Uh, that's that's going to um, be important here in a second. Let's look at the contents of the box. Hebrews chapter 9, let's go there. We're going to look at verse 4. Here's our verse that's been giving us trouble. <laughs> well, you know, it, it is, uh, I don't know, it's there. I, I, I got to believe that the, the problem here is in, in the translation or just in, in, in us. <laughs> so, 
Um, but Hebrews chapter 9, verse 4, it says, um, Having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. Okay? And so three things were inside the ark of the covenant. Tablets of stone, okay? Uh, Aaron's rod that budded, and a golden pot of manna. Okay? And so these are, uh, these are the three things. Okay, so let's kind of talk about this. Let's start with the tablets of stone. Where did these tablets of stone come from? What are they? Okay, these are the Ten Commandments. Okay, well, real quick, let's, what are you picturing in your mind right now? Hollywood props, right? Yeah, I mean, JR's got it. You know, he's kind of a tombstone. Like a gravestone or a book. Yeah, how many of you are picturing something like that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right? Now, we know that they got it right, okay? <laughs> um, and, and, and I'm sure, I mean, I, when I get to heaven, I mean, Moses is going to be, he's going to look just like Charlton Heston. And because uh, we know that that's the way it was, it had to be. Um, so this is kind of what we're picturing: these big, massive tablets, like a tombstone. Uh, what are they made out of? Not, not, they're not styrofoam. I mean, they're stone. And you know, and of course, these were written the um, the Ten Commandments. Now, now, real quick, um, Ten Commandments. I don't even know where to start with this, guys. There is so much in our world right now among even the church that, that has got this stuff. You know, I, I'm, I can safely say now because, my goodness, how far we've come. When I first got to Glencoe, okay, now I came to Glencoe in 2008. And I didn't, I didn't think I'd stay there, but maybe about two or three months, okay. It was a mess. And uh, that, you know, that first year, it was like every other week, I'd come, I'd, I'd leave, I'd tell my wife, I got to go deal with this, and we won't have a church when I get back. There's no way that this is going to work out. I just, I can tell, I've been in these situations, it's going to be a fight, and we're going to be out and finding somewhere else to go here in another week. And anyway, everything worked out, you know, I'm, I'm still there, so they, they've tolerated, uh, you know, and we've got to teach. But I had a leader in the church, an elder in the church, when I first got there, I asked him, what does a person need to do to, to become a Christian, to go to heaven? And his, yes, his response was, well, after a few moments of hesitation, obey the Ten Commandments. Nailed it. Nailed it. Yeah. Now, this is supposed to be the Lord's church, okay? And this is supposed to be the cream of the crop here, guys, right? These are the spiritual leaders, okay? Those setting the example, apt to teach, okay? Um, you know, and how do you become a Christian? What does it take to go to heaven? Well, you need to obey the Ten Commandments, okay? Um, where does that come from? Why do people think that way? Hollywood? Well, you know, if, if there's anything churchy that gets pushed today... It's the Ten Commandments. You talk to people that aren't really Christians, don't go to church any, they know about the Ten Commandments. And if, if, if there's ever been anything that our world has pushed more when it comes to the, like if we're going to stand up for something in the Bible, what does the world come together on? Well, let's get the Ten Commandments up. I mean, do you all remember when it was such a big deal? Where, how many of you had the Ten Commandments in your yard? Do you remember that? No one? You guys know what I'm talking about? The Ten Commandments, you know, why were we put, why was everybody posting those up in their yards? 
The school system, for crying out loud, was taking the Ten Commandments out of the school buildings. And what else were we doing with them? We're taking them out of somewhere else. All the courthouses, heaven forbid, the Ten Commandments were coming down off the walls. And we just, everybody just couldn't believe how far we've come. We've let God go in this country. And, uh, you know, look what we've done. And, you know, and here's the thing. I, I, I think it's ironic. Maybe funny is not the right way to word it. I hear people talk all the time, look what we did. We took prayer out of school. We took the Bible out of school. And now look at what's happened. Listen, the school system was never responsible to teach your children how to pray. Who's responsible for that? Parents were. Now, there has never been a law that said a student is not allowed to pray in school. Okay, what, what, what's not supposed to happen? Yeah, the teachers are not supposed to lead the kids in prayer. Okay? So, now I'll, I'll tell you this. My kids go to public school. That, that may end here in about a year. Um, but that my oldest is in fifth grade right now. My wife's a school teacher. Um, I will tell you this, that for ever since we've had kids, I've told her, I said, the day a, school, a public school system starts teaching the Bible is the day I pull them out. I don't trust the government to teach it. I don't trust our school systems to teach it. I don't want them teaching the Bible, right? I don't want them telling us what we're supposed to believe that's my job. I'm supposed to raise my kids to pray. My kids should be praying at home. My kids pray at school. Uh, my kids pray because they see me praying because that's what we've raised them to do. And when the school doesn't lead them in prayer, that doesn't affect their relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay? And so, if taking prayer out of school ruined our country, we were, we were already shooting ourselves in the foot before that. I mean, that, that was not the problem. The problem was parents were not raising their kids to be Christian people, okay? And so, my point is, we get all hung up on stuff because, you know, people get real upset because the Ten Commandments are coming out of the school system. How many of those people even knew what the Ten Commandments really were to begin with? I mean, how many of them ever, you know, they don't read their Bible, but we need to have the Ten Commandments in the school. Well, what, you know, it, the courthouses, right? What's going on in the courthouse? That's where they decide that it's okay to have abortions. And we want it to say, thou shalt not kill right next to that. You think that's going to stop it? You know, don't commit adultery. Where do everyone go for their divorce? Yeah, we're going to go to the courthouse, right? And so it doesn't matter if we, if we hang up the Ten Commandments. If we don't get the Word of God into people, it will never make a difference. You see what I'm saying? It's, it's, so it's, it's, you know, putting that on the outside of your building is, is what we did is we treated it like a superstition. Well, as long as we've got the Ten Commandments up, we're a godly country. We are, countries don't become Christians. People do. Okay? We don't want to be a, a, a Christian nation. Okay? Because what that means is that the government begins to push a religion on the people and the government will mess that up. Okay? There are places in our world today where they are... The, the government pushes a religion on the people. Muslim countries, for example. And what happens in those kind of countries? Get killed, right? You're not allowed to be a Christian. You know, we don't want our government pushing religion. We want our government to stay as far away from the Bible, from Christianity. We want, we want Christian people in the government. 
You see what I'm saying? And so if we want to make a difference in our society and in our schools and in our country, you don't do it from the top up. You do it from the bottom up, right? You do it by getting the Word of God into people and getting those people to be influential in our community, in, in our government, in our schools. So, you know, we need more Christian teachers who will, t- you know, stand up and say, we're not going to teach this garbage, you know. Uh, that doesn't mean they need to teach the Bible in our schools, they just leave the garbage out of it. You know what I mean? We need, we need Christian politicians to help lead our country, lead our, our local governments, you know, um, not to enforce the Bible on people, but just to hold to good, moral, godly standard. That's what we need. And if you want to uh, affect real change, you're going to do that by having a Bible study with somebody by taking the Word of God and bringing it into somebody's life, not by posting it up in a schoolhouse or posting it up at a courthouse. That doesn't affect change. Getting it inside of people's hearts will. And, and, and here's the proof. The Ten Commandments, the original Ten Commandments, what happened to them? Well, yeah, God, you know, the first set got broke, okay? What happened to the second set? They got broke too. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they broke those two. Uh, Where'd they hang them up? They locked them in a box. How many people saw inside the box? How often did they get the box out and bring out the ark, uh, you know, the, the contents for the, they march them around through a parade? And, I mean, they got locked into a box and put in a room that nobody got to see. They didn't hang them up anywhere. Okay, does that mean they weren't effective? I mean, they broke them, okay, but... But the point is, it was never about hanging them up on display. It was about getting the Word of God into people. And it, and it still, it's, it's funny how we've reverted back to something so physical now, where we think in these superstitious terms, you know, as long as we've got our church buildings, and as long as we've got, you know, the Ten Commandments posted up everywhere. And I know people that treat the Bible as, you know, they've got, they've got ten Bibles in their possession. They've never read a one of them, right? But they really think they're godly people because they carry one in their car with them. Or You, you see what I'm saying? They, we treat the stuff like superstition, okay? And that, it's not going to do any good, okay? And so the tablets of stone, um, you know, they, uh, they didn't get hung up. Okay, they got put into the box. And the, the box, you know, was hidden inside this room. And in that room, uh, nobody, nobody got to see inside the box. Okay, the box wasn't clear. The box didn't get paraded around. They didn't take these things out, hang them on display, sell tickets or anything like that. And so, um, something to consider. Now, um, back to our, 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 uh, our stone tablets. Um, what's the problem with what we see here? Thank you. They don't fit in the box, guys, <laughs> right? Um, you know, the, the, the big giant tombstone tablets, uh, they don't fit in the box, okay? Now, I'm not saying you couldn't make some that would, but here's the other thing. I don't know what kind of... Um, I don't know how often Moses hit the gym, but I can't really... I mean, if you ever lifted stone... Okay, uh, now I know he, he looks pretty ripped there, but you know, uh, if you've ever carried around stone, you know, to take these off the mountain, what do he do with them? Carried them down and threw them, right? It's kind of a, you all need to pay better attention to this one. Let me put it 
right there in your face. You know, and he threw him down the mountain at him. Um, you know, it, I, I just have a hard time seeing him doing, doing that with this. And so um, here's the thing. The stone tablet, uh, we also, how was it etched? Moses, God wrote the first set. Moses wrote the second. Uh, we picture, how many of you picture the hammer and the chisel? Uh, Moses is up there for a couple days trying to, uh, you know, do, a, do this fancy engraving. Um, where, did, where was Moses educated? Egypt, right? We're told, especially Stephen tells us he was brought up, uh, you know, with the best education Egypt had to offer. So in Egypt, when they wrote on a stone tablet, it was a soft piece of clay and they took a stick and they wrote into it and then they laid it out till it hardened and it was about the size of your hand, okay? And so if that's what Moses was used to, if that's how he had always written things, it, it kind of goes without saying that the stone tablet that Moses would have wrote probably would have looked about like that. Okay, here's a couple pictures. Here's a, a museum collection of them. I don't know where this is exactly. Uh, but these are all, you know, like I said, about the size of your hand, maybe, maybe twice the size of your hand. Okay, so it's a piece of clay take a stick, you, you etch into it, lay that out to bake, and, and that's how they preserved their writings in Egypt. And so um, here's the thing, and you can read about the second set uh, being written by Moses in Exodus chapter 34, 27 through 28. Uh, but like I said, you know, it wasn't a hammer and chisel into a rock. It's etching into soft clay, and then you set that out to bake. And so uh, he comes off the mountain. Can a man throw that? <laughs> You bet you can. And guess what? It fits in the box, okay? Um, I had a friend of mine, the guy that, that made our tabernacle uh, model that hasn't, that we haven't quite figured out how to put together. Uh, anyway, he, uh, he set up, you know, he used to teach the tabernacle a bunch, and uh, I used to work with him there when I kind of got started and into all this. And um, anyway, he decided, uh, you know, to set up in a library, a public library, and to set up, uh, I think it was for a week, he, he taught a class on the tabernacle in a public library. They brought, uh, you know, kind of to scale models of some of the things that they had in there to put on display. And anyway, he was said he was very surprised at the amount, uh, you know, he didn't realize there was such a large Jewish population in that area, but they came out because they were interested in this tabernacle study. And I said, well, how'd that go? He said, well, they think I'm an idiot. <laughs> I said, is that a fact? He said, yeah. He said, as far as they're concerned, there isn't a Christian out there that's got a clue what the Old Testament was about. And he said, they will just downright embarrass you about how little you know about it. And I said, like what? He said, well, you know, I had these big giant stones sitting out on display. Uh, you know, it was, there weren't stone. It was like, you know, styrofoam or whatever, you know, to represent the stone tablets. And I got, he said, I got schooled by about every one of them about how, you know, the stone tablet that Moses would have wrote on was small and about the size of your hand. And, you know, that that was ridiculous and, <laughs> you know, and that sort of a thing. And so anyway, it really kind of backfired on him. But yeah, so this is, this is historically accurate. This would have been what the 10, now I know that really shatters your childhood, uh, you know, when you're used to seeing Charlton Heston and the big tablets of stone. Uh, but uh, this would have been historically accurate there. Um, that's the sign. So you all remember the sign? And you all didn't have it up? Yeah? Okay. Well, good for you. <laughs> so, all right. Let's talk about Aaron's rod that budded. Okay? Um, Aaron's rod that budded. Uh, let's see. This was, uh, you know, you can read about this in Numbers chapter 17. We're not going to go through that whole account, but... Uh, but basically, you know, God had chosen Aaron to be the, uh, 
you know, the, 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 the priestly lineage there to be the high priest. And, you know, this is, this is what we call um, delegated authority, right? Aaron had no authority on his own, but the authority he had was given to him by God. And Aaron had no authority to act outside of of what God commanded him to do. And, you know, we, of course, there's, there's uh, some fighting goes on, the rebellion of Korah, you know, things like that that take place over all of this. But to prove that God had delegated Aaron to be, to be the guy, um, you know, God had, um, you know, the heads of the, of the families there lay out their, their rods, Aaron's rod budded in the morning. And this was to demonstrate that he was, in fact, uh, the high priest and his lineage there would be uh, the priesthood. And so that was kind of a big deal. Um, now, you know, when we think about Aaron's rod, is this what we picture? It's what I always pictured, uh, you know, like a, a, a shepherd's staff is kind of, you know, the shepherd's crook. Is that what they call that? Yeah, and so that's kind of what we, that's what I would picture anyway. Uh, again, you know, the first time that we see Aaron's rod is back in Egypt, okay? It would have been, well, you know, we see it all over the place in Egypt, right? And so it's, it's used in the palace of Pharaoh and so forth. And so what we see here is... Um, this is, uh, you know, some dead pharaoh. They, they were all, um, they all looked the same. They kind of had them all painted up the same way. But there's two things in his hands here, okay? One is, uh, is, uh, is what represents a shepherd's crook, okay? That's the one with the candy cane looking end on it. And this other thing over here is what was called a rod of authority, Okay, and it, it is exactly what it sounds. It was a rod that represented authority. And so it was given to a king, and that rod, when, that, that, when it went to that king's hand, uh, meant that he has the authority to do and say and to rule how he wants. Now, the shepherd's crook represented that that same king was there to provide and protect his people. Okay, so he's, he's, he's there for provision purposes, things like that. But the rod of authority represented his authority among the people. And what's also important about that is, is that if I was, if I was king, okay, I could take the rod of authority and I could walk down here and give it to JR and say, JR, you need to go to Versailles and you tell all the people in Versailles that maybe we're going to hike up the tax rate for them, okay? And then, you know, and you show them this rod of authority, and when they see that, they'll know that that law comes straight from the king, okay? That you're my representative. And so, that, so that's what that rod of authority could be passed around to, uh, to carry out the, the Pharaoh's business or those, you know, whoever had the authority's business. And so Aaron's rod that budded uh, would have, you know, again, what's wrong with the shepherd's crook? doesn't fit in the box unless you break it a few times. I don't, I don't think they had retractable ones. So, uh, but this fits in the box and it's historically accurate. Okay, and so this would have been a, uh, this would have been, like I said, a, a rod showing the authority. And of course, that's what God did. It was, it was, it budded to show that this is the man that I'm, I'm, I'm giving my authority uh, to. Okay, and so, and then the third thing that we saw uh, I don't have a picture of it because, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's not something you'd find anywhere else. But it was the golden jar of manna, okay? And, of course, what did that represent? Or where did that come from? Yeah, yeah. So the provision of God through the wilderness. And so, so these three things, okay, are put in the box and they don't come out. And they 
aren't put on display. Nobody looks at them. There's no ceremony where they're, they're lifted up and everyone gets to see them. But everybody knows that that's what's in the box. And together with the mercy seat, right, this is... Um, you know, this is the idea that God is, is represented here. God is among his people here. Uh, and, and, you know, those three things, it represents God's covenant, okay, God's law, his authority, and the authority of the priesthood, and that God is there to provide for them. And so as far as the people are concerned, okay, they're, um, yeah, they're, uh, they're looking at the Ark of the Covenant there, and they're expecting God to provide they're expecting God to rule, and they know that they are to listen uh, because they've entered this covenant with them. And here's the thing, anytime they don't, what happens? You know, because there's this roller coaster throughout the Old Testament where Israel gets complacent and they get comfortable and, you know, and they kind of quit acting like God's really there and they do their own thing and then, and then everything falls apart. And then they wake up a little bit. They cry out to God. They get themselves straightened back up. And so anytime that they don't listen, they are reminded God is for sure in control, right? And so we, we better bring ourselves back under his provision, back under his rule. We need to remind, remember what the covenant that we have uh, with him, you know? And so on and on, that, that seems to go throughout most of the Old Testament uh, history. So I, I really thought about trying to get into the uh, Day of Atonement for, the, for this part, but uh, there's no way we're going to get through it all. Matter of, next week, we're going to have to move at a fairly quick pace to get through it all, but I'd rather keep it all in one night than to do parts of it now and then you know wait a week and try to get the rest of it in. So anyway, what I thought we could do tonight is uh, you know just kind of trace the ark down through Old Testament history a little bit. And there's, you know... This, this uh, for those preachers out there, this makes a great series of sermons to preach on the events that surround the ark in the Old Testament. Uh, but there's, uh, there's, just, uh, there's just a lot that seems to go around that. And so I want to focus in, there's two of them I toyed with tonight, uh, but there's, there's one specifically I think that applies more to what we've been talking about than others. Um, so uh, let's, let's just kind of fill you in. The first time we see the ark, mentioned, of course, is in Exodus chapter 25. So that's where the, the instruction for building the ark is given. And um, again, this is, you know, from this point on, um, that ark of the covenant would represent God among his people. And so when they go to cross the Jordan, what goes first? The ark. When they, they, they uh, go into a battle against Jericho, what leads the, the, the parade every day? It's the ark, right? Um, when they, um, you know, so anyway, the, the ark kind of, you know, God going before his people is the idea, okay? And so that's, that's fairly important to, to just kind of hold on to. Let's turn with, uh, with me there. Let's turn back into 2 Samuel. I think I've got that wrong. Let's go to 1 Samuel. Chapter 4.
And we're just going to read the first five verses to kind of get us going here. But there's several chapters here, uh, chapters 4, 5, and 6, where the ark is kind of the central theme. And so this is kind of where we're going to park for a little bit tonight. Um, But 1 Samuel chapter 4, first five verses, it says, Thus the word of Samuel came to all of Israel, and now Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle. Camp beside Ebenezer, while the Philistines camped in Aphek, the Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. Verse 3, when the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the ark of the covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies." So the people sent to Shiloh, and from there they carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who sits above the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all of Israel shouted with a great shout, so that the earth resounded. Got a fly hanging around here. Okay. Um, All right, so... Israel's going to war here against the Philistines. And, you know, what we have is, you got to kind of understand, Israel is at a point here where they are living under immoral and corrupt leadership, right? So who's the high priest? Eli, right? And Eli, um, you know, he's, his sons were worthless, immoral men. Okay, God says that about them. When God says the person's worthless, my goodness, you know, I mean, that's, that's hard, okay? And God says these boys were worthless people. And that, that they, he'll say that right in this account. And so uh, that's a pretty big deal. And so Israel is dealing with uh, corrupt spiritual leadership and they're going into battle against the Philistines and understand that in all of this battle, you know, what we, what we just read is they go into battle and they lose and then they decide to go in battle again, okay? What we don't read about in any of these five verses is God being consulted a single time, okay? And we can't forget that and leave that out of this. Israel is going to go, uh, you know, conquer their enemy. That's what they think. They don't pray, they don't consult God's wisdom, right? They, they don't look to God for any answers. Uh, they, they, God is not a part of this picture at all. And so they go out and they fight and they lose and then they decide, let's take the ark and go back and fight it again, okay? Now, one of the things that you've got to understand is that throughout the Old Testament, Israel's physical battles and their spiritual battles are linked, Okay? And so when Israel sees physical success, it's because they're also seeing spiritual success. And when Israel sees physical defeat, it's because they are spiritually defeated people. And God, what, what, do you, what lesson do you think God's trying to put, uh, you know, put on us about that? Yeah, I mean, physically, he's trying to show us when, when Israel walks away from God, what are they walking away from? protection, provision, right? You know, uh, his, his power, you know, all of those things. And without God, what are they? Well, just slaves, right? I mean, bricklayers, slaves, they're, they're not an army. They're not, they're not educated in warfare. They, they don't know how to plan an attack. They don't know how to go into battle. They, I mean, they are literally just nothing without God. And, and God has to remind them that over and over and over again. Well, it's a good lesson for the Christian to remember without God, who are we? 
Okay, so we, we have to consider God in, in, in all the things that we're doing. And so, you know, we, we look at the conquest of Canaan. You know, that was all God's plan, and God promised them victory in that, but that was his agenda. So he empowered them, he enabled them, God was with them and in, in, in such a way that there's no way that you could, for example, look at the battle of Jericho and say, oh my, what, what powerful military, uh, you know, wisdom does Israel, uh, you know, possess to be able to go up against Jericho in such a way, right? The whole plan was ridiculous. It shouldn't have worked. That was the point. It was to show that the power was not in Israel, but the power was in God. And so here it's a battle and God is not a part of it, right? And so as a result, Israel's defeated because they have no strength of their own. The Philistines kill how many people? 4,000 dead, okay? Now, you know, I don't know if you consider that a lot or not a lot, um, but you've got to consider why they're dead. 4,000 people are dead because Israel relied on their own understanding and on their own strength instead of God's. 4,000 widows, right? All those children who lost their dad in battle, right? I mean, 4,000, that's a lot of people affected because God was ignored in this. And so here's the thing, you know, in verse 3, they all cry out, and, and the people come together and they say, why has the Lord defeated us today? And so who, who do they give credit for this defeat? They say God destroyed us. God killed us, right? God led us into defeat. That's, that, they blame God, guys. And so now here's the thing. If you go back into Numbers chapter 33, verse 55, God already told them why this was happening. He says this, if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land before you, then it shall come about that those whom you let remain will become as pricks in your eyes and as thorns in your sides, and they will trouble you in the land in which you live. And as I plan to do to them, so I will do to you. But they blame God, okay? They say God's defeated us. Uh, this is God's fault. And they never consider that maybe they are the problem, right? They never consider examining themselves, their unholy and unrighteous leadership, right? They, they don't consider what they're doing, what they're not doing. Now, do you think people fall into the same problem today in the church? Of course we do. Yeah. Uh, people all the time. I had a lady once, I think I shared this with you all before, but uh, you guys are going to get tired of hearing the same stories from me. It's going gonna, it's gonna to come up real quick here. <laughs> you know, you're you're going you're, you're gonna to say, well, Ethan's got about 10 of them and we've heard them all every week. Um, I had a lady uh, you know, in, in our church there that was, you know, and I, we were trying to help her out and, you know, she, you know, try to get her on the right track. But anyway, she, uh, she broke the law. She uh, wrote a bunch of bad checks and stole some money and she got caught. And uh, so she had to go to jail. And, you know, she, she calls me just bawling her eyes out. And Ethan, why is God doing this to me? <laughs> and I said, excuse me? She's like, I just don't understand why God would do this to me. I said, God didn't write bad checks. God didn't steal any money. You did that. If you were listening to God, you would not have done those things and you wouldn't be going to jail. Why do you think God's sending you to jail? She's like, well, I've been reading my Bible and I've been going to church. I'm like, well, that, that, that doesn't give you a license to do whatever you want without consequences. We reap what we sow, you see? But people in the church do this all the time. We'll, we'll do whatever we want. I always say, you know, we, we reap what we sow, right? And so if you don't like what you're reaping, maybe you need to sow differently, Okay? And then you need to start sowing with that harvest in mind because 
you will reap the consequences of your actions, okay? One day, that, that is go, that, that's going to happen. And what I tend to find in the church is people who sow one way all week long, we come to church on a Sunday and we pray for crop failure. And that's what we're doing. God, please don't let me deal with the consequences of my bad choices this week. You know, we don't raise our kids up in the fear of the Lord and then we pray that God will straighten them out. Right? We, we don't lead, uh, men aren't leading their wives. Uh, we, we've got, uh, you, know, un, you know, God's not the center of our families and we're praying that God's going to sort that out. You know, so much of our own problems is our own fault, but we want to blame God for, for all of it. And so anyway, the, the point is, you know, uh, if you're not going to follow God's word and, and, and more than just in church stuff in every part of your life, you can't sit back and blame God for the consequences. Okay, and it's not, it's in, and don't confuse that with God punishing somebody. God was not punishing Israel here. They went out to battle, left God at home. And they don't have the strength to do this. See, you are not smart enough to live your life without God and make it work. I'm not either. Nobody is, right? And so, you know, when things fall apart because you weren't listening to God, that's not punishment. That's just the way this works. God's way works. God's way for plan for a marriage. God's plan for a family. God's plan for his church. God's plan for every part of that. That stuff works. And when we deviate from it, it falls apart. Okay? And that's not punishment. That's reaping what we sow. Okay? And so anyway, here's their solution. They blame God and then they say, let's take for ourselves from Shiloh the Ark of the Covenant that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. So that's in verse 3 there. Do you see that? What are they trusting in? Yeah, they think the Ark's going to save them. Okay? And so they're going to go to Shiloh because if you remember back to the beginning of the study, you know, the, the, the tabernacle, the temporary tabernacle found a permanent location in, in Shiloh um, before, you know, the temple was set up in Jerusalem. And so there, there is the tabernacle set up in Shiloh. So they go to Shiloh and they take the Ark of the Covenant out of the tabernacle without consulting God again. But in their head, what are they thinking? Well, you know, the ark went before us in Canaan. The ark went before us in the Jordan. The ark went before us and we defeated uh, uh, Jericho. So if we bring the ark into battle, God will make sure that we win. Okay, and so, so that's what they do. Now, <clears throat> the, uh, the ark is brought into the, the camp. And in verse 5, we're told that Israel shouts so loudly that it shakes the earth. Because why? Everything's going to be okay now. Those Philistines are going to get what's coming to them. That's, the, that's their attitude. And the thing is, the Philistines also understand that the ark of God is in the camp as well because they tremble with fear. And look at verse 9. If you go on down here, it says, um, well, in, in, in verse uh, 6, it says, the Philistines heard the noise of the shout. They, they said, what does the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. The Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, verse 9. Right? Take courage and be men, O Philistines, or you will become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been slaves to you. Therefore, be men and fight. I wish more Christians had the attitude of the Philistines here. Okay? So, they, uh, 
They fight valiantly here. They, they triumph over Israel again. Uh, what we end up reading here is, uh, you know, that um, it says in verse 10 that Philistines fought, Israel was defeated, every man fled to his tent, the slaughter was very great, and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Verse 11, the ark of God was taken, the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Okay, we'll come back to that in a second. But 26,000 more died when they brought the ark into battle than died without it. You think God might be trying to prove a point here? They captured the ark. The Philistines have it in their possession. And the sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas are dead. Now Eli, you know, we find out he's waiting back at camp for word. And when he's told of what happened, the great slaughter, his sons are dead. He falls backward. He breaks his neck. He dies. Word reaches the wife of Phinehas, okay, who's about to give birth. Now look here in verse 19. His daughter-in-law... Phineas's wife was pregnant and about to give birth and when she heard the news that the ark of God was taken <coughs> excuse me <coughs> and her father-in-law and her husband had died she kneeled down and gave birth for her pains came upon her verse 20 about that time of her death the woman who stood by her said do not be afraid you have been given birth to a son she did not answer or pay attention and she called the boy Ichabod saying the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God was taken because of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God is taken. So, Phineas's wife gives birth to a son and she names her newborn son Ichabod, which means the glory of the Lord has departed from Israel. Okay? Now, <clears throat> there's... You can't help but consider... The defeat of God's people, the humiliation before their enemy, the glory of the Lord has departed from His people. It's worth considering whether the glory of the Lord is among His people today. You know, now I know that, that God dwells among His people, but how many congregations can you say, the glory of the Lord's here for sure? And how many of our congregations are absolutely living in defeat? Most of the time, our enemies are out fighting us, and the majority in the church are uninvolved and uninterested in things pertaining to God. And so, rather than the church being that brilliant light in this world and influencing the world, the world seems to be constantly pushing its influence further and deeper into the church, robbing the church of her glory. Now, if you were Israel at this point, what would you do? The Philistines have the ark. Now, we just talked about the ark. What's the purpose of the ark? What's it used for? Well, it, it represents God among His people. And then it, its function... Well, it, the, the God's authority, God's ruling us, God's providing for us, the covenant we have with God, but then the actual function of the, of the furniture, we, we, have, we won't talk about that until next week, but it's for the Day of Atonement. Okay? Now, here's one of the things we're going to understand about atonement. If atonement doesn't happen, there's no point in doing the rest. Okay? Does that make sense? Like, like if I'm not a Christian, there's no point in me being here tonight. 
You know what I mean? If I'm not a Christian, there's no point in me praying. There's no point in me studying, you know, praying, studying the Bible, giving, singing, listening to sermons won't get me to heaven. Right? I do those things because I'm a Christian. I don't do those things to, to, to earn it or, be, you know, to, you get what I'm saying? So if atonement doesn't happen, there's no point doing the rest. Atonement doesn't happen because the rest happen. Does that make sense? We'll talk more about that next week. But if the, if the ark is gone, atonement can't happen. So what's the point? I mean, if Jesus didn't die for us, what's the point of being here tonight? What's the point of your faith? That, that's what I'm getting at. And so if the Ark of the Covenant is gone, there's nothing going on there at the tabernacle. And what should be the top concern of God's people? Getting things back where God wants them, right? Restoring what was taken. Bringing the glory of God back to Israel. And I think that, that goes far beyond just the Ark being taken. You see? But what we read about in this text is, is we see what happens with the ark. We, we end up reading into what happens with the Philistines. You know what we don't hear about? We don't hear anything about Israel making plans to make these things right. What we see is everyone looks at this defeat. God's left us. The ark's gone. You know, atonement can't happen. The high priest is dead. His two sons are dead. The glory of the Lord's departed from Israel. And everyone seems to just be okay with that. Matter of fact, the story then picks up with what happens to the ark in the Philistine camp. And at some point, the Philistines send it back because they don't want it anymore. And we'll talk about this in a second. And Israel's just going on about their business as usual when it shows up unexpectedly. They weren't looking for it. They weren't trying to get it back. They weren't trying to restore what was taken. They didn't seem to care. Now, if there's ever been a picture of our church today... Unfortunately, I think that seems pretty accurate. You know, we, we, we keep acting like, well, the Acts chapter 2, we need to get back to the church in the book, in, in the, in, in the book of Acts. We need to restore that, that what we read about. You know, the, the church in the book of Acts is the church in its infancy. We should be moving on from that. And we can't even seem to get it back to that. You know what I mean? And most people are okay with that. We're not trying to get things where God wants it. We're not trying to be the glory of God among the world. We're not trying to set ourselves as a light, as an example. You know, there seems to be very, very little effort for most part. We show up, you know, let Jake do his thing. We all go home, business as usual, right? And that's, that's where a lot of people seem to be. <clears throat> so Israel takes the ark in the battle because they trusted the ark instead of God, right? And we saw that. And so the ark became that superstition, that lucky charm. It became the rabbit's foot, right? And we talked about this a little bit tonight, you know, when we talked about how so many people, you know, do things because they think that's going to get them closer to God, even though it's, it's just not really there. And so, you know, it's, it's like people today who will hold highly the Bible but not the God that wrote it, right? Uh, or, or people that will, uh, you know, uh, lift up the cross of Christ, but, but not the Christ that died on the cross. Or, you know, we, we, we treat the Lord's Supper like it's superstition, uh, like that's going to make our week go better. Or, you know, and I've seen people do that. I've seen people say, well, I'll take the Lord's Supper because I've got a job interview this week or a test, you know, or finals this week. Got to make sure I'm there. Like it's going gonna, it's gonna to help. It's going to bless them this week that they, they're going to do better. You know, people trust in, in these religious things. Um, and again, it's not like the Ark of the Covenant was bad. Where'd it come from? It was God's thing. 
Okay, so, you know, and the Lord's Supper is God's thing, and baptism is God's thing, and the Bible is God's thing. It's all God's thing, but I'm saying we can misuse these things, right, into such a way that, that they, are, they are useless. And so we've talked about prayer in the tabernacle. What happens when prayer just becomes, uh, you, know, uh, you know, we're unfaithful to the Lord, and we're just saying words to make ourselves sound religious, and, you know, people that, that don't, really believe in God, but they believe as long as we pray, everything's going to be okay. You, you know what I mean? And I, we see that a lot of times when people are sick, when people are dying, all of a sudden we've got a lot of faith in prayer, but we've never had faith in God before, you see? People do it with baptism, right? As long as I've been baptized, you know, you can trade your, I don't know if you knew this, you can trade your uh, baptismal certificate, you can trade that in for entrance to heaven one day, right? So make sure you hold on to those. People act that way, all right? Well, I was baptized, now been to church since, right? Never, never read the Bible, never served the Lord, never done anything, but I've been baptized and so I'm going to heaven. We treat it like it's a superstition, okay? Um, you know, we, we, we treat the church the same way. Well, you know, people think, well, I'll start going to church. That's gonna change my circumstances, you know? Or people that think, well, I drag my kids to church, so that means I'm raising them up to be good Christian people. Well, no, you're, you're, you're dragging them to church. That's all you're doing. That's all you're doing, you see? And so church won't do you any good if that's the only time or placed that God is on your mind, that God's being discussed, that His Word is being read, that prayer is being made, right? And same thing with like the, the, the Ten Commandments and those sorts of things. And so, like I said, a lot of people treat God's things, uh, you know, in a superstitious way. And, and, and kind of a side note here, you know, uh, when Paul is on Mars Hill and he says there in Acts that uh, the people there in Athens were very religious, that word religious means superstition. It's the same word right? That's what religious means, superstitious. And you think about how people are with their superstitions, right? Well, every time I wear this ratty old gym shirt, the Bengals win. Okay, well, we know that's not happening, or you haven't been wearing it. <laughs> so, um, you know, but, but I mean, people will hold on to these, like, they're not going to die over their superstition, right? It's, but it's kind of fun and, and quirky, and so they'll, 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 they'll do their little things or whatever. People treat Jesus that way, you know, I mean, I wouldn't die over this, right? I'm not going to cause an argument over this. I'm not going to rock the boat over this. I'm not going to sacrifice over this. I'm not going to change my schedule over this. I'm not going to be inconvenienced over this. But if it fits in and it's, it works out, then I'll be a part of it, you know? And so that's, that's something to consider. Jesus needs to be a whole lot more than that. So anyway, my point is all these things end up being useless and unprofitable without God behind them. They brought the ark, they brought the box, but they left God out of the picture, okay? So let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 5. It says here in the first three verses, it says the Philistines took the ark of God and they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it to the house of Dagon and they set it by Dagon. And when the Ashdodites arose early the morning, uh, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set him in his place again. Poor Dagon needs to be propped up. He keeps falling over. And so, this, so the Philistines bring the ark of God. They set him up in this, in this temple. Dagon was uh, uh, half fish, half man. Okay, was kind of how, how the Dagon was represented, it's considered to be the father of the Baal that they worshipped, and so it was, uh, you know, con, you know, it was a fertility god. It represented their harvest. They believed that Dagon controlled their economic security. Okay, so the Philistines depended and attributed success both economically and in war to Dagon. So they win this battle, and so they take the ark and they set it up 
in the temple of Dagon. And it's set up, you've got to picture the visual as if the ark of God is bowing before Dagon. Right? Dagon has conquered Israel's God. That's how, that's how they're, they're, they're portraying this. Okay? Um, in Judges chapter 16, the Philistines, same group of people, right? Um, when they um, are dealing with Samson, okay, they praise Dagon for delivering Samson to them. And then they, they're making a sacrifice to Dagon when Samson brings down the pillars of probably one of Dagon's temples. Right? So same God that they're worshiping there, uh, same ordeal. Okay? And so that's, that's something to consider. So Dagon and the ark are in the same temple. And um, Dagon, it says in verse 3, had fallen to his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And so the Philistines go in there and, you know, it's this visual that Dagon is now bowed before God. That's, that's kind of the, the visual that's playing out. And not only that, he's, he's fallen down and the Philistines go in there and they pick him back up, right, to put him on his pedestal. And there's, you know, there's a sermon in this, guys. You know, how many... Any, any other God than God has to be propped up, right? And you think about how many times the things people are relying on keep failing them and they just keep picking it up and picking it up and picking it up. Whether it's drugs or whether it's the bottle or whether it's you know, selfishness or worldliness or whatever else it is. Um, and at some point, things will be, things will, you know, the profane will one day fall before the holy. And every lie and error will bow before truth. And wrong will be subdued before righteousness. And every knee will bow down and confess in, in, uh, in the Lord of glory there. And so, but in the meantime, man mankind seems content to just keep picking it up and propping it up. And so that's, that's what they do. Now, <clears throat> Dagon here, you know, he, he falls down and... Uh, in verse, you know, they prop him back up. And in verse 4, it says, When they rose the next morning, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. And so, next day, Dagon, again, become Humpty Dumpty. He's fallen all over the place, okay? So his head and his hands are cut off on the threshold of the temple. Now, in ancient times cutting off of the head and the hands was a military execution. Okay, and so God is not just humiliating a false, uh, a false uh, rival here. He's, he's executed Dagon in military fashion. That's what just happened. And there's a bit of wordplay in the Hebrew. Dagon was a fish god because Philistines, they lived among the coastline. And so again, half man, half fish, kind of like a mermaid, merman kind of a thing. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Uh, you get into the Greek there, and like I said, only the fish was left. Okay, and so we've heard, you've heard dead as a mackerel. Okay, <laughs> that's Dagon. Only the fish was left. Okay, that's, that's all that's left here. Okay, and so, you know, that's something to consider, uh, you know, the, the humiliation there. You know, isn't it odd though that when mankind's idols fall, and they all fall, that our instinct is never to abandon them. Our instinct is to pick them back up. Right? Our, our instinct is to assume something went, went wrong, but you know, we'll, we'll keep putting our trust and our security in this anyway. And over and over and over and again, that lesson keeps having to be retaught and retaught. But our, our first instinct is never to abandon our idols. It's always to prop them back up. And so, and so it was here with the Philistines. Okay? Now, the thing is that the fall 
is always greater the second time because that's how sin works in our life, right? Sin will take more than it gives, takes you farther than you want to go, leaves you there longer than you want to stay, costs you more than you want to pay. Sin's progressive. It's progressive progressive in action, uh, thought. It's progressive in your heart. It's progressive in the damage that it does to your life. Verse 5, Therefore, neither the priest of Dagon nor all who enter Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. Look at verse 6. The hand of the Lord was heavy on the Ashdodites. He ravaged them and smote them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territories. Okay, so this is interesting. Um, Oh, actually, so it says there, uh, you know, that they... they, um, that they don't step over the threshold. Um, in Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 9, we can read they still leap over the threshold. I think that's interesting. So there's a connection there. Uh, so again, some superstition, I guess. Uh, and so uh, you could say when the devil says jump, some people just jump, right? Uh, but in verse 6, it says that he ravaged them and smote them with tumors. Our English translations try hard to clean. You know where we're going with this. <laughs> tried to clean this up a little bit, okay? Um, and, and they do a good job. I mean, if we were going to clean this up a little bit, that's probably the best way that we could do it. God didn't exactly smote them with tumors. Um, and you can read about this in Psalms chapter 78. Let's, let's turn there real quick. And, and depending on how the translations deal with this, you may get it, you may not here, okay? Um, and in Psalms chapter 78... Verse 60 through 66, dealing with the same account, okay? So verse 60 says, So that he abandoned the dwelling place at Shiloh, the tent which he had pitched among men, gave up his strength to captivity and his glory into the hand of the adversary. He also delivered his people to the sword and was filled with wrath at his inheritance. Fire devoured his young men and his virgins had no wedding songs and his priests fell by the sword and his widows could not weep. Okay? Verse 65 and 66. Then the Lord awoke as if from sleep, like a warrior overcome by wine. He drove his adversaries backward, and he put on them an everlasting reproach. Okay? An everlasting reproach. Depending on your translation, um, some translations have this. He drove his adversaries backward. Okay? That's, that's one way to, to word it. Uh, another translation has he smote his enemies in the hinder parts. Okay? Huh? In their heinies. Okay? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. And so what it is, is he sent an incurable plague of hemorrhoids on the Philistine people here. Okay? He literally smote them in their hindquarters. Okay? And so God became a very physical pain in the butt to these people. I mean, that... You see what I did there? Yeah, that's exactly what God did. And so the people there, you know, it's look what they do. It, go back to, to 1 Samuel. It says in verse 7, The ark of God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is so severe on us. And so uh, God smote them with these incurable hemorrhoids. And, and that's what the Hebrew word brings out of that. Um, and they start playing hot potato with the ark. They, they start just sending it from one town to the next town to the next town. So nobody wants it, right? Uh, nobody wants it, they, so they just keep sending it to their neighbor. And so on that goes for a little bit. Uh, they'd send it to another family, and the same thing would happen there. So finally, they come to the conclusion. They say, well, let's just get this back to Israel, 
right? Let's send it back where it came from, okay? And so here, here's the question. And again, you know, we'll clean it up best we can. Such a cute little. Uh, <laughs> what, what are you going to do when God becomes a pain in your butt? Okay, now think about this. If you're not living the kind of life that you need to live, Okay, and you're going to come and you're going to sit in to Bible study and you're going to come into the assembly on a Sunday morning and you're going to spend any time in the Bible at all and you haven't broken your own conscience, God is going to become a bit of a pain to you. You know, you're going to feel guilt. Okay, you're going to feel conviction. Conviction is pain, right? And I know we would love to just live in a world that didn't have any pain, but pain is good. What does it tell us? It tells us something's wrong, that something needs to change, that we need to do something differently. And so, you know, if you're not living the way that you're supposed to live and you haven't broken yourself, uh, you know, mentally in front of your conscience and you haven't hardened your heart, then God is going to become a pain for a while. And then you have to decide. And, and you know, I, I get the opportunity to sit down with people and, you know, I have a lot of Bible studies in my home or in their homes. And, you know, I... I I'm very, I'm way more concerned with getting people in the Bible than I am with getting lost people in the church building because, you know, that doesn't necessarily help them, but getting them in the Bible will. And so, you know, a lot of people I'll sit down with and there, there comes a point pretty early on where we talk about the nature of the Bible itself and how it's a, it's a double-edged sword and it's going to cut. And, you know, and the whole point of that is, is because I don't care who you are, at some point the Bible is going to tell you that there's something you need to do that you don't want to do or that there's something you need to stop doing that you sure enough want to keep doing. And what are you going to do when it hits home? Because it will hit home. To sit back and act like someone who's not a Christian is living exactly the way they're supposed to doesn't happen, right? And so at some point, the Bible's going to call to your attention some things that need to be changed, and it's not going to be pleasant. You're going to have to deal with what, you know, maybe what Bible's saying is different from what mom and dad told you. Maybe what the Bible's saying is different from what you grew up with. Maybe what the Bible's wanting you to do is not what your, your spouse is wanting you to do. Maybe it's bringing attention to things you've got to change at home. Maybe you've got to change your schedule. Maybe you've got to change your hobbies. Maybe you've got to make some sacrifices. I don't know what it is, but everyone needs to be prepared beforehand and decide what are you going to do when it happens. But when that moment comes and the Bible starts the conviction and God becomes a pain, what are you going to do? What did the Philistines do? Just get rid of it. And how, that's what most people do. Right? Most people just, well, I just don't want to hear it anymore. I won't go back to that church anymore. I won't have to hear that preacher anymore. I won't come back to that Bible study anymore. I'll close my Bible so I don't have to hear it anymore. You know, we just, we send it down the road. We distance ourselves from it so that we don't have to feel that pain anymore. Okay? And so, that's something to consider. God is going to upset the status quo in your life at some point. Everywhere in the book of Acts that the gospel was preached resulted in division. You, know, you understand that? Everywhere, every city, the gospel was preached it resulted in division. Right? Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. And where's the fight going to take place? Well, it's in your home, right? The people that are closest to you are going to be the first ones to, to oppose the change that you need to make in your life, okay? Uh, and, and so, you know, you can ignore God, okay? But you can't avoid God. And you can keep your distance from Him, 
right? You can, you can stop listening. You can stop going to Bible study. You can, you know, uh, you can try to stay as comfortably ignorant and uninformed as you, you can so not to feel conviction. But one day you can't avoid it anymore, right? You'll stand before the throne and, and there won't be any ignoring it. My, my point here is this. In this account, in these chapters, okay, if you take the whole thing as a whole, you have two different groups of people. You've got the Philistines and the Israelites. Neither one of them seem to want God a part of their lives. Israel's content with reducing God to the box where they can bring him out and put him back, where they can treat him like a superstition, doesn't have to have any bearing on their life. The Philistines, they just get him out of here. We don't want any more of this, right? He's upsetting everything we believe. He's, he's upsetting everything that we're doing. We don't care for that either, okay? So on one hand, you've got a religious group who prefers to reduce their faith to superstition, and then you've got worldly people who thought they could set up God next to their false idols without God causing any conflict in their life. And the point is, you know, we have to decide, you know, in this account, uh, you know, there's this child that's born and his name is Ichabod. And what does that mean? The glory of God has departed, right? You know, what, what would be the opposite of that? If God's departed, huh? God's, yeah, then if God's left us, the opposite of that would be God among us. You realize that, you know, we got Ichabod here, but eventually we get Emmanuel, God among us. I mean, that's, that's the idea, you know, and, and the glory of the Lord departs from Israel in this account, and there's, there's a lot to think about because I don't read anything that says it came back. Now, you can look into that however you want to. I, I'm, I'm just telling you, it, it, we, we get a clear clear statement that the glory of the Lord has departed from Israel, we don't get a clear statement that says it comes back. And so, I think about it this way. God departing from us, right? It's nothing but defeat on both sides. The world, even the the religious people, but God among us, how how, how much difference does that make in our lives? should make all the difference, right? But we have to actually live and believe like God is surely among us, that the glory of God is right in here. 